You're listening to Redeeming Grace Audio. For more resources or messages, check out redeeminggracecc.com. My wife and I were watching a documentary about a guy who goes into abandoned places and just takes pictures and explores them and talks to people about them. And in this one in particular, they were focused on abandoned shopping malls. And I'm not sure what it was. I've seen abandoned spaces before. I've been in abandoned spaces before. I love looking at pictures of abandoned spaces. But there was something about these shopping malls that was particularly shocking and a little overwhelming. And maybe it was just the magnitude of how big these buildings really are, especially when they're empty and kind of desolate. But also just thinking about what shopping malls are and the amount of people that come in and through them and the, the, the liveliness that is usually associated with and the busyness that's associated with a shopping mall. And you would have some people from the area that would come that had talked, that had visited the mall and they would come and talk to him about what it was like when the mall was running. And some of these, as recently as 2009, 2012, were still operating. And then they go in and less than a decade later, it looks like no one had been there in a hundred years. All these shops that were filled with with items and people coming in and out were empty and vandalized all over the place. Glass busted out everywhere. Water had started seeping in from the ceilings. In some places, ponds had formed and all kinds of nasty things growing inside of it. And it was just gross. And it was crazy because it went from this place of commerce and community and at times even extravagance to now this giant tomb of emptiness and vandalism and even a place that can make you sick if you spend too much time inside of it. And we see something like that spiritually in Revelation chapter 18. Last week, we looked at chapter 17 and the first part of chapter 18 as we're introduced to this this city that is an, an embodiment of a significant thing here, a symbolic embodiment of just the forces and the power of evil in this world, this kingdom that stands in opposition to God. And we see it represented as this city that John describes as Babylon. This reference to this old city, this enemy of God's people in the Old Testament. Now we see it as a personification of the forces that try to stand against God and all that he's doing. And we see the city presented as as great and elaborate and glorious. But then as soon as we're introduced to the city in chapter 17, we see in chapter 18 that this city is fallen. The spiritual force that tries to stand in opposition to God comes and goes just as quickly. But there's another group mentioned in the side of this passage described as the kings of earth who had this relationship with this city. The people and the kingdoms of this world that constantly turned away and rebelled against God and went towards his enemies. And as we see, this representation of Babylon is the power of sin and hell and idolatry in the world. We see these kingdoms of the world that have been described all the way through the book of Revelation these false kingdoms that try to take our attention away from God, we see that that's where they're drawing their power from. And here as we continue through the latter half of chapter 18, we see that as this spiritual Babylon falls, those that she leaves behind that found their hope and trust and security in her are left lost 
and mourning. And so this morning, as we continue making our way towards the end of the book of Revelation, as we've been on this trajectory towards hope and restoration, we see God dealing with his enemies in the aftermath of what that looks like. And so picking up from last week, we're both going to see the, the harshness with which God deals with sin and immorality and wickedness and these things that stand against him. But also there's a warning in here for followers of Christ to be sure that our lives don't reflect the lives that are mentioned here as these people have put their hope in things that are destined to fall, knowing full well that temptation is there for each and every one of us as well. And so we're going to look at chapter 18 of the book of Revelation and read verses 11 through 24. And this is the word of God. It says, And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since no one buys their cargo anymore, cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented woods, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, and sheep, horses, and chariots, and slaves, that is, human souls. The fruit for which you longed has gone from you. And all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. And all the shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors, and all those who trade in the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, for in a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of the harpists and musicians of flute players and trumpeters will be heard with you no more. And craftsmen of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of the lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of the bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth. And all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Almighty God, as again, we're still resting in the midst of these, these heavy passages. God, I pray that you illuminate them with the light of the hope that we have coming in Revelation 19, 20, 21, and 22. But God, also that we would see these as both a reminder of your coming judgment over sin and the powers of hell and death but also, God, a reminder that you've called us to live in a way that puts our hope and our trust and our faith firmly and securely in you. 
And even though there's so many things around us vying for our attentions and our affections, God, help us to keep our eyes fixed completely and totally on you and the work that you've called us to do of spreading the gospel and loving you and our neighbors as ourselves. So Father, we just ask that you would speak to us through your word. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can learn a lot about people when they mourn. And that's not to say that when we mourn, it's the most pure representation of ourselves, because I don't think that it really is. But when we mourn, we have a tendency to reveal kind of a deeper part of ourselves, maybe exaggerated and turned up to 11 or 12, but it's a, a very real and core part of who we are. And not only can we learn about one another when we mourn, not only do we learn about other people because of the things or the way that they mourn, but we can also learn about people because of the things for which they mourn. The things that cause us to grieve, the things that cause our hearts to be moved, reveal a lot about our priorities and the important things in our lives and the things that just really matter. And here in this passage, when we see this city fall, Again, this spiritual representation here at the end of the book of Revelation, because the imagery gets kind of, there's a lot of it going on here. And what we're going to see is when we look at Jesus coming back to make everything right and everything new, when Jesus restores the world to what it should be at the end of this book, it's represented in the picture of God bringing his city to earth. And so what we have in the latter part of this book is kind of a tale of two cities. One that is built by people, one that's built on our pride and sin and ambition, that's in rebellion against God, and one that God is building himself. And so as this city that tried to stand against God falls, we see left in that wake mourners. Here it's described as merchants, basically people that trafficked in, in all of the things that this, this spiritual city of Babylon had to offer. And while the inhabitants of the city mourn, it's, it's kind of a unique mourning because it doesn't feel particularly like sorrow. There's a little bit of fear here, clearly, and we see that as we move through the chapter. But really, this mourning comes not out of sorrow from the loss, but out of greed. When we look at these first verses in verse 11, 12, and 13, we see the merchants weep and mourn for the city, but then we get a reason why. It says, because no one buys their stuff anymore. No one is, is making them rich or making them wealthy anymore. And so what they're mourning is not the loss of, of a city or an ideology or a place or anything along those lines, but what they're mourning is a loss of their own wealth. And in verse 14, there's this harsh picture of where their heart really was. It says, the fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you. All your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. And so after this judgment of Christ, what we see here in the wake of the enemies of God falling, those who followed after them are left with absolutely nothing. This voice from heaven rings out and echoes over them everything that you hoped for. Everything that you wanted, the fruit of your desires, your passions, the thing in which you placed your entire life's effort into, it's all gone. And there's nothing that's going to bring it back. And so what do you have now? Nothing. For these merchants, the driving force of their life was wealth. 
And now they've come to the reality of how quickly that can fall. And this is why all through scripture, but especially in the teachings of Christ, we have warnings against this idea of materialism, about finding our hope and our security and our joy and things that are temporary and that can pass away. And a lot of times we can reduce the teaching that Jesus has on this to just minimalism. That Jesus is just trying to teach us to live a minimal or a simplistic life. But in fact, what Jesus is doing is fitting us for eternity. He's teaching us how to look at the things that matter and the things that don't. He's helping us to understand the things that should be our priorities and the things that shouldn't. The things in which we should place our hope. The things in which should be the fruit of our desire that we long for and put our lives into. And the things that we shouldn't because they're destined to fall apart and they're always going to leave us wanting. When we look through scripture... And we see the warnings about how dangerous it can be, that the love of money is the root of all evil. When we see the commandments not to focus on building ourselves kingdoms here and now and, and consuming as much as we can and having all the things we can, be it power, fame, wealth, material goods, relationships, putting our hope and faith in all of these things, we're warned against it time and time and time again in scripture because God loves us. And when he does that, it's not that he's just trying to keep us away from things, but he's trying to guard our hearts because he knows that if I put all of my hope in my finances, if I put all of my hope in fame or notoriety, if I put all of my hope in governmental structures and political systems, if I put all of my hope in relationships or in the skills or gifts or talents that I have, if I take any one of these things and put them in the place of Christ, they are always going to fail me. They're always going to fall apart. They're always going to leave me with nothing. And so God gives us those commandments to guard our hearts and shape our vision and help us to understand where our priorities really should be. Not simply as an act of worship, which it is, but also because it's the best way for us to possibly live and putting all our hope and trust in Christ. But it's interesting because as we see this passage flow, these merchants are not simply mourning their lost wealth, but they're mourning what that wealth represents. And we started talking about this a little bit last week. And this idea that the core of all of these things is the idea of security. When we saw in chapter 13 and 14, this picture of, of this beast that made war against God, again, one of these representations of the enemy of God, we saw one of the things that he offered was security. The idea that, that you can be taken care of. Because that's really a deep desire of all of us. Nobody wants to feel insecure. No one wants to feel unsafe. And these merchants, they found their security and their wealth. Because I can just buy what I need. It doesn't matter what it costs me spiritually. It doesn't matter what it costs me morally. As long as I have my wealth, then I can take care of any problems that I have. But now, the security seems to be disappearing. And it's a scary thing. When I was young, I've talked about this before, I was a little person, tiny little guy. Little guy, big head, especially in middle school. And another side of, of this affliction is not only was I a little guy, big head, not very strong, I also had a very big mouth, which may be surprising to all of you. And I noticed 
that when I was younger, I didn't use my big mouth as much because I, I wanted to, but I also knew because based on experience, if I used my big mouth, then there would be consequences for it. Like one time in fifth grade, I used my big mouth against someone much bigger than me. And he literally for 15 minutes in recess, as I just kept running at him with all of my strength and fury would grab me by my big head and just throw me. It was insane. It was the most degrading thing. that could buy. It was worse than him beating me up. He was literally just throwing me by my giant head because I was running my mouth. But as I got a little older, I made some friends. And some of those friends were bigger. And I started to learn, I can run my mouth and I can write these checks and they got to cash them. And it emboldened me to an unnecessary level. And you see it happen in sports all the time, especially team sports, because you have this just variation in size with football teams and basketball teams. And you'll see this little guy and he charges a big guy and just starts running his mouth at a big guy because he knows that there's another big guy behind him. And it's the same thing that we see all through Revelation. When we see these enemies of God presented, especially these false kingdoms that represent all these things that are they're fleeting and shallow, there's an arrogance to it. And really all throughout scripture, when God's enemies are described, there is, there is an arrogance that they gloat and that they boast because they feel like they have this power behind them. But now all of this boasting and perceived power of the nations and their immorality is silenced and replaced with mourning because all the false kingdoms of wealth and power and immorality that are funded by the spiritual enemy of God, when she falls, so do their kingdoms. And we have this picture here of this heart that fueled the body of evil and brokenness cut off. And the rest of the body knows that there's not much time left. In verse 19, we see these shipmasters and seafaring men. Again, this representation of people that follow after the enemies of God. And in verse 19, it says, they threw dust on their heads as they wept and they mourned because they realized that there was nothing left. And so all the false security that sin and greed and power, and we can keep filling in the blank of all these false kingdoms that we try to put in place of God can provide us, can be taken in an instant. Look at what they're crying out. It says, alas, alas, for the great city, where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. They had this security coming for her. It says, in a single hour, she's been laid to waste. And it happened before they could even recognize it. In Psalms chapter two, it says, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of this earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and then dash them in pieces like the potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. 
Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The psalmist here is just drawing us that picture of the fact that this is who God is. When all the nations and principalities of this world conspire against God, he just laughs in heaven. He says, you have nothing against me. And so the the calling here in this passage of scripture for the kings and rulers of the earth, but also for anyone who reads those words is to recognize the power and awesomeness and authority of God and trust in him and him alone. And this is why Jesus warns us saying, don't store up for yourself treasures on earth where where moth and rust can destroy and thieves can come in and steal, but store up for yourself treasure in heaven. There's no moths there that can destroy. There's no rust that can corrode the treasures that God has assigned for you. No thief can come in and steal. And as we've seen in 1 Peter, Peter tells us that our inheritance in Christ is guarded by God and held for us for all of eternity and nothing can take it away. And so Jesus says, don't waste your time with these things that don't matter, finding your hope and your peace in them. But I wonder how often we look more like the kings and merchants and sailors of Revelation than we do like the king of kings. How often, even as followers of Christ, do we allow these things around us to start to lure our attentions and our affections and saying, you know what? Like, I know God is good. And I really want to follow him. I really want to trust in him. But mm, this seems like the easier road. This seems like the quicker path. This seems like the most secure at the time because sometimes God calls us to step out on faith while our sin and the temptation in our life is saying, no, 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 here's the safer path. Here's where you need to be. Do these things because how do you know God is going to catch you? And so we exchange the truth for a lie. We change eternal security for temporary satisfaction. And here in this passage of scripture, just as well as Psalms chapter two, the warning there is don't lose your focus. Don't forget your king. Don't forget the God who laughs in the heavens when anyone comes against him. When the world makes promises that seem so so glittery and special at the time, recognizing that those things are fleeting and will pass away, but the word of God stands forever. And as we've seen, he affirms and holds up all of his promises so that we can take everything that we have and pour it into our worship of God, pour it into following after him, even when it costs us something, even when it costs us something dear, we know, like Abraham knew as he took Isaac up the hill, that God will redeem and restore and put back together all the broken things in our life. And so everything that we have here and now, we've just been given as stewards to manage and govern and use for the glory of God. And if God gives good, if God takes away, fine, because as Paul said, we can do all of these things in riches and wealth and poverty and sickness and health. We can do all of these things through Christ who gives us strength. And so we need to be very careful that we don't find ourselves mourning the things that God takes away that aren't that meaningful at all. We need to be careful that we're not putting our ultimate hope in things that are not ultimate. And we need to look at this passage of scripture as an example that if you're a follower of Christ should absolutely never be followed in our life, recognizing that every day we have temptations from inside and from outside trying to get us to abandon the hope that we have in God and to follow after something temporary and fleeting. And so we see just this Desperate picture of mourning. And then we see that it is a very final 
thing that happens to the city and to the enemies of God. And it's weird to watch a city change. I've, I've lived in Walton County since 1989. So I've been here a while. We were four, I was four when we moved here. And it's changed a lot. The whole county has changed a lot, but Loganville has changed a lot too. And over that period of time, and I know some of you have been here longer, maybe some of you have not been here nearly as long, but no matter how long you've been here, you've seen some things change. And it's amazing because sometimes businesses start and businesses close. Restaurants open, restaurants fall away. Buildings are built and then they're destroyed. I remember there was a little gas station, an abandoned gas station. I don't know why abandoned buildings are coming up. So I guess I do, because it's like a desolate city. It all fits together. There was this little building at the intersection of 20 and 78, on the other side of 78, that was an old gas station. And as long as we lived here, it was not an operating gas station. I don't know when it closed down. I don't know when it was abandoned. But as long as I can remember seeing it, it was abandoned. And we would drive by it all the time on the way to school and on the way to baseball games and basketball games, whatever we were doing. And I would see this little gas station. And for whatever reason, I just loved it. And I wanted it. And I would just daydream about all the things that I could do, opening a business or something inside of it. I have no idea why it was that particular building, but I just loved it. And then one day, they destroyed it, just wiped it off the face of the planet. And then a couple years later, they built a CVS on top of it. And now there is no trace of my gas station ever. In fact, probably a lot of you in this room that never knew it even existed. It was there. At one point in time, it was being used. And then it was abandoned. And then it was gone. And every trace of it is now under a drugstore. <laughs> when we look at verse 21, we see this mighty angel. And we've seen that imagery so much through this passage of scripture. God using these mighty angels to accomplish his will. And it says that he took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea. This dramatic presentation of what God is doing to his enemies. And he says, so will Babylon, the great city, again, still using that language, the great city will be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And here we get to the harsh reality of, of this final judgment that God is bringing on the world. Then when God comes in judgment against his enemies, it's not simply discipline, as we've discussed. It's not simply punishment, but it's banishment from his kingdom and from his world. As we've already mentioned, when we get to Revelation 20 and 21 and we see God building the city and making everything right and everything new, the whole climax, not just of the book of Revelation, but of all of scripture, when we see that taking place, it is a brand new heaven and new earth. And to do that, he has to take and cleanse and purge away all the things that are not holy and good and righteous and perfect. And we see that happening here and now. And then in the rest of this passage here, we see all of these no mores that the sound of the harpists and musicians or flute players and trumpet players will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman or any crafts will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. The light of the lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of the bridegroom and the bride will be heard in you no more. This idea that when God brings his judgment, it is total, complete, and final. And we see this idea of Babylon and all of her inhabitants no longer, not just having any glory, but having nothing left. And this is a completion. This is an answer to a question that we've seen, not just in Revelation, but all through scripture. 
As we talked about last week and as we've talked about other places inside of the study of Revelation, one of the cries, the questions that God's people ask over and over throughout scripture is, how long? How long will the righteous suffer? How long will the wicked prosper? How long will you allow sin and unrighteousness to continue in your good and perfect world, God? How long will you allow people to be martyred for their faith? How long, how long, how long are you going to allow this to take place? And here in this passage of scripture, we see that one day all of the how longs of God's people will be answered with a resounding no longer. That all of these things that have caused brokenness and chaos in God's creation will be taken away. All of these things that have caused us pain internally, spiritually, the things that even we've brought out, our own sin and shame and brokenness and guilt, all of it will be taken and removed and taken as far as the East is from the West. All the things that break our hearts, all the things that have caused us emotional and physical pain, all those things will be washed away and God will bring everything back to the way that it's supposed to be. And he'll answer the how long with no longer. And as we're going to see, that'll be a day when God wipes away every tear from our eyes. That all the sickness and pain and death that, that has been brought into our world by sin and evil and corruption will be completely removed. And that's the hope that we're looking towards. And we're going to spend the next few weeks just basking in that hope and being encouraged by the beauty of the end of this book, this end of God's revelation for how he's planning to fully restore his world. But just as it's been with every other passage we've looked at, when we've talked about the spiritual struggle of believers, when we've talked about the physical struggle that's going on in, in our world and, and will go on until the day Christ returns, our calling is the same, and that's to wait. And we've talked about what it means to wait, to wait actively, to wait worshiping God with all that we have, to wait by taking the message of the gospel all over the world, to wait by loving our neighbors and caring for those around us and lifting up the oppressed and caring for those who are broken and doing the work of Christ. But we're called to wait for the day that God will rid the world of sin and brokenness and unrighteousness. But not only do we work while we wait, but as we've seen in this passage, we have a calling and a responsibility to resist those things as we wait. We don't just rest back on the truth that, that once we're saved, we're saved indeed, that he whose son sets free is free indeed, and that he'll complete the good work that he started in us. But we know that we have the responsibility that when we have been saved by Christ, we have been given a freedom from sin. And so we should pursue Christ each and every day, not falling into the same traps or temptations, not falling into to the Lord to look other places than God for our security, but to keep our eyes fixed totally and completely on him each and every day. And that battle begins each and every morning. Because just like God's mercies are new for us each and every morning, we know that the temptations of our flesh, the temptations of our sin is still there each and every day. And so is a world ready to lure us away from Christ. And so it's our responsibility each day to take up the work of Christ, to put our hands to the plow, to do gospel work everywhere that we go, but also each and every day to take on the armor of Christ and to protect ourselves from sin and temptation so that we can honor and glorify God, but also so that he can guard and protect our hearts to keep us from this unnecessary heartbreak that comes from trusting in things destined to fail and can firm up our hearts and spirits in the truth that he will never leave us or forsake us 
and that he is the same today, yesterday, and forever, that his promises are yes and amen, and that one day our perseverance and our work will be able to be laid down at the feet of Christ, and we'll get to enter into his rest and his glory, and it will be better than anything the world could ever offer us here and now. Father God, I just ask that you forgive me for the times when I look like more like a merchant than I do a follower of Christ. When I put my hope and my faith and my trust somewhere else. God, thank you for the times that when I've been overwhelmingly let down and disappointed and mourning over these temporary things that don't matter, that you are there to pick me up and to love me and to care for me. God, we thank you that you do have a plan one day to rid your world of, of wickedness and evil and unrighteousness. God, we thank you that because of the gospel, that anyone who puts their faith in you, God, you'll take that evil and wickedness out of us and restore us and redeem us and fit us for eternity. God, we thank you for these last chapters we're approaching in the book of Revelation. But God, we also thank you for these difficult ones that remind us that you do not take sin lightly, that you do not take the suffering of your people lightly, and that one day the answer to our how longs will be no longer. And we'll get to be with you and rest with you for the rest of eternity. So help us to keep our eyes fixed there. Help us to keep our hearts filled with worship and our hands and our feet constantly put to the work of the gospel. God, may you be glorified in all that we do. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.